0: Welcome to Hazel and Katniss and Harry and Star, a young adult literature podcast that also addresses their filmic adaptations and everything in between. I'm Joe. And I'm Brenna. All right. So we are recording from the past in anticipation of the future. This is mid-December. I don't know how you're doing, Brenna. I've got my eggnog chocolate (laughs) mint coffee. (laughs) (laughs) The weather is absolutely horrendous, and we're here to talk about an unlikely combo.
1: I'm loving the fact that it's mid-December, because that means exams are behind me, marking is behind me, I'm en route to see my family. This is lovely. I'm in a very good headspace right now.
0: It's future forecasting. (laughs) I can already envision it.
1: So this week we're talking about The Scarlet Letter by Nathaniel Hawthorne, the classic novel obviously not a work of YA, but we're talking about it because we're also talking about Easy A, the very delightful sort of adaptation of the story.
0: Yes, I think this is the loosest of adaptations (laughs) we have covered by far.
1: Definitely. But I do have some news before we get started.
0: Yes, hit me with that news.
1: Unsurprisingly, my news comes from my library holds list.
0: I feel like we should just rename this section for you.
1: <laughs> Brenna's library holds list. I just got this book, Hearts Unbroken, by Cynthia Leach or Litchich Smith, and it's like a YA romance about Indigenous teens. Oh. Yeah. So I'm pretty excited because Indigenous writing is underrepresented in publishing generally, but in publishing for young people, Indigenous content is way, way underrepresented. And if any of our listeners are, are curious about diversifying their reading lives a little bit, there's a woman named Debbie Reese who operates a blog that's all about both spotlighting Indigenous representation in children's lit, but also calling out really bad representation of Indigenous people in children's literature, both from the past and into the present. So I've been following her blog for a long time, and she's really, really pro this book Hearts Unbroken. So yeah, I came in this week. I'm really excited. It sounds really interesting. It's got kind of like a school newspaper, but also a school musical background. And the idea is that the, I guess the school musical has been cast inclusive and this small Kansas town is all up in arms about it. So anyway, it can't not be delightful. I'm pretty excited to uh, to read it. So that's my news for this week.
0: That sounds really great. What's the uh, name of the blog?
1: So the name of the blog is American Indians in Children's Literature, AICL. And if you Google American Indians in Children's Literature or Debbie Reese, it'll come up with both. Her Twitter feed is also amazing for drawing attention to new books coming out that you might not heard about.
0: That's awesome. We'll link to it in the show notes so that people can get to it easily that way. Great idea. Okay.
1: How about you? Did you bring news? I
0: did. And <laughs> Yay! perhaps we can rename my section of this. The I already tweeted this at you earlier. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh, I know what you're going to talk about. This looks atrocious.
0: Yeah, we're going to have to be careful because we're just going to keep upsetting people. (laughs) Uh, My contribution to this section is that there is a trailer for a new YA adaptation that's coming out in April, and it's called After, and this is based on a Wattpad series series. So Hat is a online website where individuals who aspire to be authors or who want to share their writing in a really accessible way can do so. And it's often done chapter by chapter. It's interesting, Margaret Atwood is on there and a couple of other really famous people, but it's mostly aspiring writers. So this woman, she was a semi-bored housewife who aspired to do more. So she ended up writing fan fiction about Harry Styles.
1: I heard that she wrote the whole thing like on her cell phone, in lineups, either at Target or like when waiting to buy gas.
0: Talk about multitasking.
1: Seriously.
0: I'm intrigued by the backstory. I'm not sure that the content is something that I would appreciate quite as much. It's essentially a girl who goes to college and has a sexual awakening courtesy of a boy. And the movie seems to be resonating very well with its audience, but it does look very much like a junior version of Fifty Shades of Grey.
1: My worry with these narratives, and I haven't read it so and i will give it a fair shake when joe makes me but my <laughs> my worry with these narratives is this idea that you are sort of ever changed after you have sex is mm-hmm. so straight out of purity culture and all of th- that mess entails that even when it's trying to be sexy i worry about the underlying message when we suggest that teen girls are never the same after they have sex i think that's really dangerous but I will give it a fair shake when the time comes.
0: Yeah, I concur. I think the issue that I tend to have is that it places so much focus on a first sexual encounter as well. You know, and I'm thinking back to before I fall from a couple of chapters ago, it puts so much emphasis on this idea that it has to be special or it has to be magnificent, and it just ends up causing young people who are reading this and who are at an impressionable stage in their life, I think it makes them think, oh my goodness, all of a sudden there have to be all these parameters around it. And maybe that's not what life is really like for, I don't think, anyone.
1: No, and I think it's something worth maybe talking about as we progress through this series is how contemporary YA shapes expectations of teenage experience. I think about this all the time when I watch Degrassi, which I do. All the time. (laughs) All the time. I have cousins who are just emerging out of their teen years and watching their sort of last years of high school and like things like the promposal that Mm -hmm. has now emerged as a thing. This idea that the simple act of being asked to prom has to A, be a big production, but B, promposal, like aligning it with a wedding proposal. I don't know it's interesting and to me all of this stuff has come well I don't really know chicken or egg I don't know if this stuff was latent in the culture and then youth media picked it up but I certainly encountered all of this in youth media long before I saw my teenage cousins posting about their promposal experiences. Oh
0: dear. (laughs) Yeah and to me as a as a queer person it also feels extremely heteronormative oh, which absolutely. is maybe me imposing a queer fallacy on it but because the stories are so traditionally male female it often to me reiterates a normality of expected behavior it's not just you got to have that proposal; it's that you've got to have it from a person of an opposite sex
1: well totally they also tend to be very white in terms of the media representations of these narratives go mm-hmm. i mean you're you're hitting the nail on the head you could not have A movie trailer like Awake about a queer couple, that's a hard R rating no matter what, right? Because that content is always seen by the segment of the population that rates movies as being like adult in a way that teen romance and sexuality is not when it's heterosexual. It's not seen as nearly so taboo anymore when it's heterosexual. So yeah, there's all sorts of stuff wrapped up in that, but I'm sure we'll have a lot to talk about when it comes out.
0: Indeed. Yes. Let's look forward to that in April.
1: Looking... (laughs)
0: <laughs> all right well let's transition into the topic for today and let's begin with that classic 1850s harloty romance <laughs> Brenna, can you walk us through what the scarlet letter is all about because i just watched the movie and it just seemed like she took a lot of baths <laughs>
1: Nice callback, my friend. Yeah, so Scarlet Letter is an 1850 novel by Nathaniel Hawthorne. It's itself a work of historical fiction, so he's writing about the Puritans 200 and a bit years prior. And Uh, The basic idea is that the story opens with Hester, I've always called her Hester Prine, and then in easy A they called her Hester Prynne, and I was very confused. So I'm going to call her Hester Prine anyway, because there's an E on the end. Gosh darn it. So Hester Prine, we meet her at the beginning of the film, and she's, or (laughs) the film. We meet her at the beginning of the book, and she is being sort of shunned by the community because she has had a daughter out of wedlock, and... More than that, she refuses to release the name of the man with whom she has had this child. So Hester refuses to say who this man is. She's also uh, technically, additionally, an adulteress because she is married and her Husband, She came to the New World ahead of her husband, who was to follow on a later boat. They're all Puritans, but he is assumed to have been drowned at sea. So people kind of, I think, may have looked the other way about that, except that now a child has come forth out of wedlock and she won't name the guy and the town is scandalized by the idea that there's this guy walking around who has besmirched the lady. So she technically, I guess, should be sentenced to death, but the community goes easy on her and instead allows her to live as long as she stitches an air A to her chest, and in a a small act of defiance on her part, she uses her incredible needlework skills to make this beautiful red and gold-stitched A that she wears upon her otherwise plain puritanical vestments. So right at the time that we meet Hester, we also meet a stranger who has come into town who, surprise, is the husband who was supposed to be dead. And he agrees not to make anything worse for Hester if she agrees to keep his secret because he's living under an assumed name and sort of pretending to be a doctor. And over the course of the narrative, we meet the child who is spirited and interesting. Her name is Pearl. People think she might be demonic because she behaves... Like Like a a child. child. (laughs) So in about chapter 6, you figure out that the father of the child is the minister, but that doesn't actually get revealed till like chapter 13. Just one of the more frustrating aspects of the novel.
0: I had to look it up because I was sure I had missed something.
1: (laughs) like everybody's talking about his sin but they don't actually say it until I think chapter 13 is when it actually comes out and so one of the things that's happening with him is that he's this most beloved minister in the community uh, but he's getting sicker sicker and sicker and sicker and sicker and no one knows why this is a really common trope in Nathaniel Hawthorne's work the idea that you manifest bodily the sins of your character which was common in Victorian literature in general right like think about picture of Dorian Gray and Mm -hmm. Jekyll and Hyde. Like, this is a really common trope. The British Victorians tend to think about this in terms of, like, ugliness, (laughs) like, ugly people are bad, Um, whereas the American Victorianists tend to think about it as diseased people are bad, which is just part of the delicious soup of Protestant ableism <laughs> that America and, by extension, Canada are steeped in, right, the idea that disease is a moral failing. Interestingly, you don't have to feel obligated to provide uh, universal health care if disease is a moral failing. Just saying. Yeah, you just,
0: <laughs> you know, have to stay away from romaine lettuce.
1: <laughs> oh, God, that's a new story that I found depressing just because, like, this is what people are going to listen to the CDC for. Mm -hmm. Anyway, whatever. So, yeah, so it turns out the minister is the father of the child, and he can't bring himself to admit to it. He can't bring himself to acknowledge the child, and as the narrative progresses, he gets sicker and sicker. We also find out that this mysterious stranger, who is Hester's husband, who is pretending to be a doctor, who is now living with the minister, is like probably poisoning him to get revenge. And then in the end, the minister confesses. And so. Spoiler,
0: spoiler, spoiler. <laughs> it
1: was published in 1850. If you haven't gotten to it yet, it's on you. So he confesses to everything in front of all the people at the big election day. Uh, Sermon, which I think has to do with the religious elect not like political elections um, and the new governor coming into power
0: It's not exactly clear
1: (laughs) No, and so uh, he confesses and dies immediately upon his confession leaving Hester once again to just Muddle forward with life because he's dead now and Mm -hmm. his sin is gone. The end.
0: The frickin' end.
1: (laughs) And the thing, like, to me, one of the big standouts that obviously the film has no reason to address is Victorian masculinity and what it means to be a man in American Victorian context, borrowed from the Puritan context, but... I say that because one of the things that is most staggering to me is that as the minister confesses, as we find out that he is secretly the father of this child, at no point does he express any remorse for not being involved in the child's raising in any way. Nope. Or interested at all in her as a person or as his child, except that he's worried she looks so much like him that people are going to figure it out. And when he dies, he feels no compunction about leaving Hester to deal with the whole parenting thing all by herself again.
0: Yeah, so this was interesting for me. I thought that I knew the story based on the popularity of the text. And when I was doing a little bit of research, it's actually astounding how many times this particular book has been adapted into different kinds of properties a lot of films, but also a ton of operas.
1: Oh, really? Oh, I can Mm -hmm. see that. It's got a good tragedy.
0: Yeah, but the funny thing is, is that to me, the way that it has been contextualized as a piece of famous property— I thought that this was 100% all about Hester. I thought it was her story.
1: Oh, yeah, no. (laughs) And
0: then when I'm reading the book, I was so frustrated because it seems like Nathaniel Hawthorne did not care about this woman at all.
1: It seemed like that because he did not.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Which is just so aggravating. It reads like it's a commentary about how women are treated more harshly by society, which is just something that is so relevant to contemporary audiences. But then it seems like there's no investment at all in her as a character, apart from the fact that she wears the A and she suffers. And then 80% of the book is the freaking minister and her <laughs> husband just like badgering.
1: It is so classically an example of a narrative being far more interested in the ramifications of women's pain for the men who caused it. Game of Thrones, I'm looking at you. Um, this, This is like a classic, this is classically the problem with art that addresses tangentially addresses women's issues, but is primarily focalized through and written by men. Mm -hmm. That is all that is of interest to Nathaniel Hawthorne, is how does this impact on poor what's-his-face?
0: Dimsdale. Dimsdale.
1: Reverend Dimsdale, yeah. Yeah. Um, Yes, I I absolutely agree with you. I absolutely, and I've I've read this before. I read it during my American Comprehensive Exam. I then was reading it for, you know, overarching themes that connected to the other books of the period, so was less interested in, like— plot. <laughs> right. So now reading it again for the actual narrative, as I'm thinking about how it's going to be used in EZA, that's exactly my feeling. Is like, where is Hester? She pops in once in a while to be basically accused of witchcraft by some crazy old lady who lives in a room.
0: And I wanted that story so much more. <laughs> I kept wishing I was reading The Crucible, to be honest.
1: It's so interesting to me, too, because it's very much Hawthorne's representation of Puritan America, like he's often, or his narrator anyway, is often sort of half laughing at the silly things these Puritans believe. All the while totally buying into the conception that illness is a representation of your moral feelings. (laughs) So like...
0: Yeah, there's a bit of hypocrisy going on in there, isn't there?
1: Germ theory, Mr. Hawthorne, you know, at all? No? Okay, cool. (laughs) Um, And um, I think I'd be remiss in not mentioning the way indigenous characters are used in the text as basically like... so effective. so... It's convenient representations of wildness or wilderness.
0: Mm-hmm. Mystical savages.
1: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And like, the one character who might actually take the indigenous communities, to which he owes literally all of his knowledge base. Chillingworth. Yes. Richard, Robert? Ch- Richard Chillingworth? Richard. Like, he owes everything to the indigenous people who have been like, secreting him away while he waits to make his big return to the community. And he turns out to be completely evil. So great. You
0: know? Yeah,
1: they do make an allusion to a figure from the period at the end of the book, John Elliot You know how he's talking about he lies and says that he went into the woods to see Apostle Elliot Yes, so Elliot was believed to be I mean he was a, he was a Puritan missionary But he was believed to have sort of a special relationship with the indigenous people around the Massachusetts Bay colonies and there was the idea that he was especially Sort of divined by God to specially minister to the native population. And hmm. within the context of the fact that he was a, a missionary and therefore, like, his ultimate goal was colonization and assimilation of the people with whom he was engaging. Naturally. Relatively seen as sort of one of the good guys.
0: I hope you're using air quotations. I, oh my God,
1: I was making air quotations. <laughs> so, you know, that reference is in there. But overall, the only thing Hawthorne cares less about than Hester are the indigenous people he uses to basically like flag wildness for his Victorian audience and I don't know man the book is disappointing to me.
0: Yeah I found it a very very difficult read and part of this is that I'm really just off my game in terms of reading quote-unquote literature. I read a lot of contemporary texts. I read a lot of graphic novels. So for me, this was a stretch. I I feel like I haven't used these muscles in a long time.
1: And Hawthorne is dense, right? Like Hawthorne is particularly dense. He engages in a lot of descriptions, some of which I actually really enjoyed. Like when he spends time actually describing the work Hester puts into making garments for people and like Mm -hmm. her care work. That I was really into and I really enjoyed. But the problem is that if if you're already, as a reader, really over how much energy is being spent on the minister, then the extensive descriptions of his work are not fun.
0: No. <laughs> yeah, it's too much internalized description. And to me, I'm very much fixated on plot. I like good characters and I like plot. And I found that what we were getting out of the characters wasn't actually character development. And there was virtually no plot at all. <laughs> but the thing that also struck me as very interesting is the obviously very deliberate decision to open the book after the affair had yes. already taken place and after it had been discovered. And that to me was a another confirmation of the puritanical hypocrisy because it's clear that Nathaniel did not want or had no interest in these salacious details.
1: (laughs) Well, yeah, and that's the thing, right? Like, insofar as Hester is a sympathetic character, particularly for an 1850s American audience, she is demure and quiet and dignified, and she bears her punishment. And when we do see her admit to feeling love and, and sort of falling for the reverend in that scene in the woods, it's all very chaste. And Mm -hmm. that is what makes her sympathetic, right? Like if we had seen her actually like be seduced, or uh, obviously she's the woman, so obviously she's doing the seducing. Um, Mm, (laughs) If we had seen all of that, especially because he's a minister, right? Suddenly she's not a sympathetic character. So Hawthorne I think is really savvy in framing it that way, but I think for a a modern audience, like for us, it's just way less interesting.
0: It's true. Which you can understand then why they begin the story a lot earlier in all of the more recent movie adaptations.
1: Yeah, in fact, I don't think I've ever seen an adaptation where you don't see at least, or at least you don't, you don't at least get some story or representation of the fall itself. Mm -hmm. the idea of opening after the punishment. And also the other thing from a narrative perspective is because he opens the book where we get this history of the colony and then we're brought into the crowd scene. Hawthorne writes it, I think, really adeptly where we are just members of this crowd scene trying to figure out what's going on, just like everyone else in the crowd. Um, And I think the, the intention there is to connect us with the community. Maybe it renders us somewhat complicit in the shame that Hester experiences. But yeah, I think ultimately, if if what you're interested in is a story, this is not the book for you. Because there isn't one, really. It's about the minister coming to terms with the need to atone for his sins. Mm-hmm. It's not about the minister realizing that he has deeply harmed Hester. It's not about the minister coming to a realization about a desire to be with his child. It's not about Chillingworth realizing that maybe if you leave woman completely to her own devices to survive on her own in a fledgling colony that she might make choices you don't like. Like it's not about any of those things. No. It's just about the minister learning to atone and then he gets to die. I.
0: Yeah. It, yeah there's no arc at all it's really no. it's it's like a morality sermon
1: yes yes i think that's a fair comment mm.
0: are we good to transition to how easy adapts this
1: i think so because i think and i'm i don't want to speak for our listeners but i'm guessing they're most interested in how this text gets used in a ya context since they are subscribers to our young adult podcast
0: Fair enough. Okay, so I've pulled up the IMDB summary, because there are some fairly significant things that are different, because as we said, this is a loose adaptation. So this is written by the Massey twins. It's the best out of all of the ones that were written. So easy A. By Will Gluck is about high school student Olive Pendergast, played by Emma Stone, and she finds herself the victim of her school's rumor mill when she lies to her best friend Rhiannon about a weekend tryst with a fictional college freshman. Word quickly spreads of Olive's promiscuity, and much to her surprise, she welcomes the attention. When she agrees to help out a bullied friend by pretending to sleep with him, her image rapidly degrades to a more lavicious state, and her world begins to spin out of control. As she helps more and more of her classmates and her lies continue to escalate, Olive all of must find a way to save face before the school's religious fanatic Marianne, Amanda Byrnes, gets her expelled and she loses a shot at attaining her own happiness. And here's the trailer. Let me just begin by saying that there are two sides to every story. And this is my side. The right one. I used to be anonymous, and nothing, a non-entity. Olive, that's your name, right? Yeah, uh, we've had nine classes together since kindergarten. Mm-hmm. So here it is, part one. I'm just a Do you want to go out with me? Brandon, just a couple hours ago, you told me you were gay. You said I should pretend to be straight. I didn't mean with me. I am tormented every day at school. Just one good imaginary fling. Which brings us to part two. Is that Olive with Brandon? No, grunt and make it convincing. Oh. Stop, stop, oh, I'm not gonna stop. You ready for the grand finale? Yeah. What? oh Yeah! Thank you. What's up? I always thought that pretending to lose my virginity would be a little more special. Judy Bloom should have prepared me for that. Brandon told me what you did for No. He told me the truth I was just hoping that maybe you could do the same for me So whether I liked it
1: or not I was open for business 20% off to Bath and Body Works
0: Is that how much our
1: imaginary trust spent to you? i fake rocked your world we need to pray for her but we also need to get her the hell out of here amen
0: okay so brenna what did you think of A?
1: well i mean the film itself is delightful emma stone was this her breakout role
0: oh yeah 100 percent. and
1: she's fabulous in it her comic timing so is perfect um her characterization is perfect That idea of being a teen girl who feels smarter than the world she has been stuck with is perfect. Her parents are wonderful. And I even think, like, I think it's one of Amanda Bynes' best roles. I think she's fantastic in it. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, as a film, I adore this film. I mean, I watched it for the first time, I think around the time it came out, maybe not in theaters, but shortly after. And um, I've always had a soft spot for Emma Stone. and, And the film is funny. It's compelling. It's quite charming. And I think if it resonates with you, what Joe and I are saying about the lack of focus on Hester's experience in The Scarlet Letter, the film fixes all of that because this is exclusively about Olive's experience.
0: It really is. And even though it's really touching on a number of the same things, so it is really interested in the way that the lies and the rumors end up affecting her as an individual, Mm -hmm. it's actually interested in her as a character and shaping what that does to her in terms of not just high school popularity and her reputation, but also how it affects her internally as a legitimate, well-rounded, three-dimensional character.
1: And I think one thing the film does really well that echoes the book, obviously in a contemporary context, but I think a pretty, pretty honestly and truly to what Hawthorne does is reflect on the myriad ways that shame and our perceptions of a woman, young woman's virtue are manifest. So I'm thinking, you know, obviously Amanda Bynes, her character as this sort of leader of the high school God Squad, <laughs> she's definitely kind of the traditional moral center in the context of, you know, The puritanical underpinnings of this story. But also, we've got guidance counselor, I think, Lisa Kudrow's character, right, Um, who is a hundred percent willing to let Olive be destroyed to protect her own secrets in a way that I think is, you know, extreme. It's a teacher who's sleeping with a student. It's an extreme scenario. But I do think it It underscores the way all levels of society are working in the book, all levels of society are working against Hester to keep her down right? Like, Mm -hmm. in the book, it talks about how Hester sews clothing for street urchins and takes it to them, and they're like, yeah, thanks, whore. Like, you know, this idea that there is no one lower than a fallen woman is really, really quite evocatively done within the high school context by having sort of not just the students, but the teachers knowing that one's reputation is everything.
0: And to me, this is one of the smartest ways that this material could have been adapted, because setting it in a high school context It's so appropriate and evocative.
1: Yes, because in a contemporary context, once you get out of sort of the structures of high school and perhaps to a lesser extent, college or university, depending on your context, you can move away from your reputation, right? In a way that Hester can't. Like Hester in The Scarlet Letter is stuck in this Puritan colony with everyone's perceptions of her as everything. And the only way you really echo that in, I think, in a contemporary context is with a high school. Right, I mean, maybe a church group, like, but you've you've got to pick a a location that has that same sort of closed social world.
0: Yeah, and interestingly enough, in the book, there's the suggestion that you can run away from your reputation. So at one point, she tries to encourage the minister that they should escape from Salem and go to Europe, where they can just start over and use different names and get rid of all of the baggage. And we see that represented in the character Brandon, our secondary gay character.
1: (laughs) yay YA bingo
0: (laughs) yay but he ends up making that escape because he ultimately can't deal or rather he feels that the only way to be free Mm -hmm. is to run away
1: yes well and I mean it kind of is for him right in that context Okay, so of course uh, the big difference here is that Olive gets a happy ending, right? Where Hester cannot possibly get a happy ending. The ending of The Scarlet Letter is ambiguous. We never really know what happens to Hester and Pearl, although Hester seems to haunt the Massachusetts Bay Colony ever after. In this, we get an unambiguous YA happy ending where Mm -hmm. um, the nice boy who liked Olive all along long before her reputation was besmirched and ever after.
0: Though did nothing to help her. Though did
1: literally nothing to help her (laughs) while it was all happening. Just sort of stood around and was like, I don't believe the rumors. Anywho, but she goes off with him on a lawnmower. What John Cusack movie is that last scene echoing?
0: Oh, that's from Say Anything.
1: That's the one with the speakers.
0: And the hand fist is from uh, The Breakfast Club. That's right.
1: Right. And so it's a very cute ending and totally appropriate to uh, much more empowered contemporary version of Hester's story, one where Olive is able to take control of the narrative. I mean, that's the main difference in the two texts. I mean, there's obviously a lot of differences, but to me the main difference is that Hester has no voice in The Scarlet Letter. And Olive has a voice in the form of this, I have to say my least favorite part of the film is the web live cast.
0: Oh, you don't like it as a framing device?
1: I don't like it as a framing device because I think the movie itself forgets about it in the Mm. middle no i don't and it doesn't it does not ruin the film for me but i think it's the least strong aspect of the film but what it's useful for is that it gives all of the power to take the narrative for herself nathaniel hawthorne was never going to give it to hester and and hester's time period both the time in which she is set and the time in which the novel is written does not allow for her to take back the narrative so instead she just has to fade away
0: it's interesting to me cuz one of the things that I feel like I've been picking up on as a trope in the books but most definitely in the film adaptations is the use of voiceover narration to tell a lot of internalized dialogue. And it's something that I grapple with because traditionally when I see it on film and television, I often think of it as a bit of a crutch. You're meant to show, not tell.
1: Mm-hmm. And
0: how requisite is it in order to help move the story along? But in this case, I kind of like it because her video podcasting speaks to the way that the communication and the rumors and the gossip is traveling around. So I think it's a bit clever. I agree with you that I think it does end up getting lost or forgotten in the middle mm-hmm. parts. And the screenplay is not perfect. It's got a couple of saggy bits. But to me, the part that doesn't work the most is actually the Lisa Kudrow, Mrs. Griffiths affair piece.
1: Well, it's such a significant pivot from the way her character is first presented.
0: Yeah. Okay, so Miss Griffiths comes in very late in the game and she is the wife of Olive's favorite teacher, the English teacher who is played by Thomas Hayden Church and he's great. He's The shining example of every high school teacher that you would ever want. He cares about Olive. He approaches her. He listens to her. He encourages her even as he sees that her actions and her persona are changing dramatically as the rumor mill goes into overdrive.
1: He also hates the popular kids, which is one of my favorite YA teacher tropes.
0: (laughs) Yes. Yeah. (laughs) Because everybody loves the outcasts and nobody likes the popular kids
1: which is the probably the exact opposite of actual high school experience yeah
0: unfortunately Mm -hmm. (laughs) so we're given this introduction to his wife mrs griffiths who is the high school guidance teacher and she comes off initially as reserved but she's funny and flippin', and they have good camaraderie and you're you're kind of like okay cool whatever i'm sure she'll become important yeah, as you said, she's sleeping with a mature student, and he gives her chlamydia, or she gives him chlamydia. Like it's so unclear where the chlamydia came from.
1: <laughs> Do you know where I think that that comes from, though? Not the chlamydia, but the storyline. <laughs> I was reading. Um, uh, I was reading some background to the adaptation. Okay, and I guess. Who wrote the screenplay? It's not Will Gluck, right?
0: No. No. Keep talking. I'll look it up.
1: Okay, because the screenwriter apparently was interested in not adapting only The Scarlet Letter, but also Cyrano de Bergerac, which I'm not sure where that comes into play, Hmm. and The Mystery of Edwin Drood. Do you know The Mystery of Edwin Drood?
0: I don't. And the screenwriter, by the way, is Bert V. Royal.
1: That's it. So Mystery of Edwin Drood is Charles Dickens' last book book and i'm not sure how apocryphal it is but the book was unfinished at the time of his death and there's all sorts of mystery and intrigue about you know all that goes into an author leaving a book unfinished Mm -hmm. it's called edwin drood but the focus is actually on john jasper who's like this opium addict character i think he's drood's uncle it's been a long time but he's in love with one of his students and i wonder if that relationship between Um, Lisa Kudrow's character and the student is a holdover from a version of the script that tried more aggressively to adapt all three of these novels at once.
0: Mm, Yeah, maybe. Which
1: seems bizarre and ambitious. I guess apparently like he had this plan for this sort of cycle of YA films where these characters would all recur and they'd be telling these three stories.
0: Interesting. Yeah, Yeah, that would be incredibly ambitious and completely unlikely to happen.
1: Yes, (laughs) yes. Anyway, so I don't know. I I was reading about it when I was trying to find more information about the act of adapting, and I think, unfortunately for our context not for the film's context because i think the film survives this perfectly well but i think that that might also be why the film doesn't always maintain sort of a sustained engagement with scarlet letter because apparently there was a lot of other stuff going on
0: yeah that wouldn't make a lot of sense because when the revelation that mrs griffiths has been sleeping with the student comes in it feels like a really hard pivot and to me I can see the Kraken in in the screenplay occur at that point, and the film actually loses a little bit of momentum, or Mm -hmm. it just feels like it's set adrift for a little bit, because all of a sudden Marianne is no longer the central source of conflict for Olive. And we've also got some other background drama going on with Olive's best friend Rhiannon, who's played by Allie McChalka.
1: She's lovely in the film, and I would have liked to see that relationship I wouldn't say expanded, but sustained more through the film. Like she just kind of disappears at a certain point.
0: She disappears and then she shows back up as almost a secondary antagonist, but the conflict doesn't really go anywhere. And it's not at all, to me, satisfactorily resolved. It ends with a text text message, message. yeah, (laughs) (laughs) Um, which would be appropriate, except that that's... You know, it's appropriate for the times, but it doesn't, it doesn't satisfy at all.
1: Agreed. Fully, fully agreed.
0: But I think so many other things about this movie do work. I think as a loose adaptation, it's making a lot of really smart decisions about what it is taking on from The Scarlet Letter, Mm -hmm. and it's fleshing it out with memorable characters and just absolutely fantastic comedic wit the other thing that I really like about it and it's surprising to me because the movie's not super old at this point but it's not recent either we're talking mm-hmm. about 2010 the metatextual references to pop culture still work
1: they do they really do i was surprised by how recent and i was going to say fresh and that that sounded awful but timely. you know timely yeah it doesn't it does not feel like a typical film from 2010 that had that level of engagement with pop culture. This was going to be my um, YA bingo for today, but when that line she has about being a gossip girl in the sweet valley of traveling pants. um, (laughs)
0: Yes.
1: (laughs) (laughs) It's great, right? Because she's selected very carefully. Apparently that line is Stone's own ad lib. Oh,
0: nice.
1: Yeah, and um, she's selected very carefully timeless properties, right? So you don't have to go and look up any of those three things. If you're an avid person engaged in young adult culture, you know what all three of those references are right off the bat. Mm Mm-hmm. Also, when they allude to culture in the past, you know, like the 80s movies references, there's a lot of Ferris Bueller's Day Off sort of allusion. Um,
0: More 16 candles.
1: More 16 candles, uh, say anything. Um, She even refers to wishing John Hughes was writing her life at a certain point. Mm -hmm. That's already established classic by the time she's making that reference, so it doesn't feel old to us now.
0: No, because those are properties that will continue to live on In pop culture as great examples of the kinds of things that she's actually experiencing.
1: Exactly. Exactly. So it's not, you know, you just have to be careful when you're making those kinds of references, whether in YA books or films, that you're not choosing properties that will turn out to be ephemeral. And you can't always know, right?
0: No, but you can be a little bit more smart about it.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. They do a good job.
0: Yeah. All right. Well, do you have any other observations that you want to make about either the book or the film?
1: No, I think we've covered everything that I really wanted to talk about today. I was delighted to see a version of this story that centers Hester slash Olive's experience. And I think that the success of that has a lot to do with Emma Stone as an actress. Yes. I mean, I think this is a hard role to pull off because she is so committed to the performance of Slattern Mm -hmm. (laughs) at school, and yet we never lose track of who she actually is as a person. And I think, yeah, I just think she's a nuanced and uh, effective actress in this role. It made me miss her teen roles. Not that I don't like her now, because I do. I always find her delightful, but seeing her do sort of a full-on YA comedy is great. And, And likewise, I think Amanda Bynes is the opposite. I think we're typically used to seeing Amanda Bynes go broad. Mm-hmm. Um, and this character is uh, an extreme representation of the leader of the purity squad at school, but she reigns in a lot of her physical comedy sort of instincts, I guess, mm-hmm. um, to create what I think is probably her best and funniest character.
0: The film smartly taps into the charm and the charisma of both of those actresses just so, so well. Mm-hmm. And to be honest, I think the other thing is that it's unabashedly feminist. When you think about it, when you peel back those layers, it's horrendous. Like, Mm -hmm. the plot of this movie is so scarily true I think to a lot of people's experiences mm-hmm. but it does it in a way that is so relatable but it's firmly focused on the female experience and it would have been really easy to broaden this out and had terrible parents like what we would normally expect to see in YA yeah, that's uh, true. to have a conflict where she tries to go after the boy and he says like no you're a slut and I'm not gonna do anything with you. But it recognizes the comedic prowess of Stone and Bynes, and it really does a good job of building on that to still tell a story that's inherently very much about religious intolerance and hypocrisy and the damage that unfounded rumors can do, Mm -hmm. but it's doing it in a way that really speaks to its audience as well.
1: Yeah, I agree completely, and it's really interesting to me that one of the things that the film keeps from the novel is this idea that Hester, in spite of all that her community believes about her, continues to effectively minister more effectively than the minister to Mm -hmm. people who are ill and in need and desperate, right? And so the context obviously changes, and what Olive is doing in the film is saving social reputations of the boys Mm
0: -hmm.
1: by destroying her own social reputation much like you know one of the things that's important about the fact that Hester does all this ministering but never herself gets sick is it speaks to that moral equivalence right that Nathaniel Hawthorne is drawing between illness and morality like Hester can go into a plague house and look after people because she's found her goodness again so she's not gonna Mm -hmm. get sick Um, and there's something about the sweetness and the empathy that Olive feels for these boys that is on the one hand touching but on the other hand infuriating because she it takes her so long to come to her own rescue in the way that she is more than willing to come to the rescue of, of the boys
0: yeah and they themselves are then unwilling to help her in any capacity when she actually calls on them exactly which honestly, that to me is a secondary plot line or an aspect of the story that is more relevant in today's culture than I think any other aspect of the film.
1: It's a really good point. It's something we're going to see come up again and again as we look at more Contemporary products like, like I'm talking 2017, 2018 stuff, we see a lot of that bystander stuff coming into YA in a big way.
0: (laughs) I'm not sure I can say that those are things I'm looking forward to talking about.
1: (laughs) Yay, Yay, depressing.
0: Okay, so I know you mentioned it casually, but give me that YA bingo once again. Bingo.
1: Not a good bingo. Okay, so my YA bingo was when Stone's character says, Gossip Girl in the Sweet Valley of Traveling Pants. If there's one thing YA loves to do, it's allusions to other YA.
0: Mmm, so self-referential.
1: Mm-hmm how about you do you got one
0: i do yeah i contemplated introducing voiceover as a general one but i think it's just it's too broad so my ya will be funny parents
1: oh yeah funny parents so much better than terrible parents
0: it's true yeah we already have like dead parents or absent parents Mm -hmm. but i will take funny parents particularly when they're played so freaking delightfully by stanley tucci and patricia clarkson i
1: adore them both Oh so much in this
0: love them. Film. yeah the family dynamic just warmed my heart so much
1: yes I love that opening scene where they're like where her little brother is like I'm adopted what you're adopted <laughs> who told you <laughs> so good so, so good.
0: good all right so that about wraps up our discussion on the scarlet letter and easy A so where are we headed to next Brenna
1: it is sunny Toronto is it sunny in Toronto today Joe
0: uh not, not currently, but <laughs> especially in the world of Scott Pilgrim, it's always a little doom and gloom, isn't it?
1: It's true. So we're going to, I guess, snowy Toronto to hang out with Scott Pilgrim. Joe and I have read all six volumes of Scott Pilgrim comic series, and we've watched Scott Pilgrim vs. the World. So that's what we're talking about next week.
0: Indeed. All right. So Brenna, where can people find you on the internet?
1: I am at Brenna C. Gray, Gray with an A, on Twitter
0: and i am at b stole my remote that's the letter b stole my remote and of course if you want to engage with the show you can always reach us by using the hashtag hkhspod and one thing that we need to keep remembering to do is if you like the show obviously we would like you to give us a review or give us a starred rating so that other people can find it Helps the show, helps us, yes. All right, well, until then.
1: I will see you on the page.
0: And I will see you on the screen.